You've tuned in to the Roundtable Dialogues number four, The Changing Face of Storytelling, with Kat Rambo, Michael Armstrong, Joe Bonadonna, and Janet and Chris Morris. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. Welcome to yet another edition of the Roundtable Dialogues, where we gather together a diverse group of illustrious literati to discuss the various topics, issues, and concepts that are preying on the minds of, of writers everywhere in today's modern world. Our topic today is the changing face of storytelling. And let me take a moment just to introduce our, our panel of, of guests and commentators and visionaries for this episode of the Roundtable Dialogues. First, I'd like to introduce Michael Armstrong, graduate of the Clarion Science Fiction Writers Workshop. Michael was born in Charlottesville, Virginia, raised in Tampa, Florida, and then apparently, having had enough of those warm, temperate regions, moved to Anchorage, Alaska in 1979 and has lived in Homer, Alaska for the last 20 years, where he works as a reporter for the local weekly paper. Uh, he spent his first two Alaskan summers working on an Arctic archaeological dig, uh, uh, experiences which inspired him to write his novel, Agvik. His first novel, After the Zap, was a finalist for the Compton Crook Award, and he also wrote the sci-fi tale, The Hidden War. His most recent published novel is Bridge Over Hell, available from Perseid Press. His short fiction and articles have been published in Asimov's Fantasy and Science Fiction, Analog, Fiction Quarterly, The Anchorage Daily News, and in many anthologies. And, if Facebook pictures are to be believed, he looks fabulous in a kilt. <laughs> Michael Armstrong, thank you for joining us for this episode of Roundtable Dialogue, sir. Great, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Next on our roster is Kat Rambo, editor, author, and educator. Kat edited the iconic fantasy magazine and won a World Fantasy Award for her sterling efforts there. In fact, she recently guest edited the Women Destroy Fantasy issue of that magazine. Her story, Five Ways to Fall in Love on Planet Porcelain, was nominated for a nebula, and rightly so. It was marvelous. And she offers a superb series of online writing workshops. Kat also has a Patreon feed where, for a paltry sum, she graces subscribers with marvelous literary treats. And as a subscriber, I can tell you it's a delight and well worth the price of admission. Uh, she's a graduate of the Clarion West Writers Workshop in 2005, the vice president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, and a former guest host on the Roundtable podcast. Those last three bits of information are not necessarily presented in the order of significance. Cat <laughs> Rambo, thank you for joining us for this discussion, ma'am. Thank you. And I would like to corroborate that Michael looks wonderful in a kilt because <laughs> I've witnessed it. <laughs> See, now there's a story. We may have to get into that during the, the afternoons <laughs> of this particular I could, discussion. I could discuss that. <laughs> Off recorder, off recorder. Uh, next on our list is Joe Bonadonna. Now, Joe has thus far published three books. The heroic fantasy Mad Shadows, The Weird Tales of Dorgo the Dowser, uh, published by iUniverse. The space opera Three Against the Stars, published by Airship 27 Productions. And Waters of Darkness, a sword and sorcery pirate adventure in collaboration with David C. Smith and published by Damnation Books. He has stories in numerous anthologies, including Griot's Sisters of the Spear from MV Media, Sinbad, The New Voyages, Volume 4 from Airship 27 Productions, and Poets in Hell, the latest volume in Janet and Chris Morris's classic Heroes in Hell Shared Universe, published by Perseid Press. He has also written a number of articles and book reviews for Blackgate Magazine. And while his laundry may not be clean, we are delighted to have him here for this episode of the Roundtable Dialogues. Joe, thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Hello, everybody. It's great to be here. Great to <laughs> In the virtual studio, indeed, with the comfy chairs. This yes. is how we roll. And last on our list, Janet and Chris Morris, certainly not least. These are friends of the Roundtable podcast. Janet and Chris actually have permanent reserved seats in our virtual studios. They've blazed a bold and diverse trail, both through speculative fiction and in their own lives, 
whether it's scribbling tracks for the Christopher Morris band, narrating audiobooks, defining global policy with their non-lethality treatises, contributing to iconic fantasy worlds like the Thieves World series, or founding an anthological dynasty like the now 17 volumes of the Heroes in Hell anthologies, Janet and Chris redefined the discussion. They are the creators of Perseid Press, the imprint for those who like to read dangerously, and through it have brought numerous voices of the specfic community into the public eye with exquisite tales. Janet, Chris, as always, thank you so much for joining us on the roundtable. Thank you, Dave. Thanks a lot, Dave, for having us. Absolutely. All right, dear friends, let's dive into this. Now, now here's the thing. Uh, uh, that has, that has captured my attention and I think the imaginations of, of writers everywhere. Uh, uh, just in the last 20 or 30 years, storytelling has changed dramatically. There are new venues, new opportunities, new modalities. Uh, uh, recently we had a discussion about the, the resurgence of the audiobook and, and the oral tradition. Uh, there are ebooks. There's, there's transmedia storytelling. There's, there's, Video games, uh, uh, so much has changed in terms of the format and delivery of the stories that our, our readers are consuming. I'm wondering how that has changed the, the, the telling of the stories themselves. So I, I, I put the question, uh, to, to the group and we'll start off with Joe Bonadonna. Uh, Joe, in, in, you've been doing this for a while. Uh, you've seen these changes unfold. What, what do you see is is the biggest change that you've been confronted with as a writer moving forward in your craft? Uh, there's two things I've I've noticed that in uh, print media there's still, of course, um, word limitations on on short stories. Where I've noticed on the online publications, many of them have no word limitations. I mean, they'll, they're not going to accept a hundred thousand word you know, novel when they want a short story. But um, if I wrote a 26,000 word story, it would, it, it's not going to be in a print mag, this one print magazine. It's going to be in their online version. And uh, so there, there's, there's more choices for writers there. And the other thing I, I'm seeing happen, which is everybody's seeing happen and, and hugely uh, dominating, I think everything is the, the, the self publishing and I don't mean like I did my first book through iUniverse. I mean, going through, say, Amazon with the Kindle thing and people selling their books for 99 cents and writers not going through the submission and uh, rejection and learning by trial and error process. And there seems to be, you know, like we used to say, there, everybody wanted to be a guitar player and Rockstar, now it seems everybody wants to be an author because self-publishing has opened that up and made it so easy for people to just write something and go ahead and publish it. And whether they go for professional editing, have their mom edit it or a best friend edit it, I'm seeing just more and more people coming out of the woodwork who are writing a book nowadays. And in my opinion, that has its pros and its cons, too. Okay. All right. Well, we'll explore that. We'll explore that. It sounds like you're coming down on the side of this is a dubious prospect at this point, this this self-pub thing. There's, yeah, a little bit of that, but also it, it's a great thing because there are how many more writers than there are agents? How many, you know, how many, you know, in, in the book market, you know, book sales being what they are, you know, with the brick and mortar stores being almost, you know, an endangered species. Not everyone's getting an agent. Not everyone's getting a traditional publishing contract. So there's a lot of good writers out there that are avoiding that or just not even choosing that route because they know it's very, very hard. I mean, I've been, like I said, um, I've been writing off and on almost as long as Janet. And um, I've seen the changes over the years. And, you know, and I'm surprised at how many really, really good writers there are who are self-publishing when I think, Man, this guy, this girl, this woman, she should, why doesn't she have an agent, a traditional mm. publisher? Uh, and maybe that's leading, you know, self-publishing might lead to that. Like, you know, me self-publishing led to people asking, you know, me to write for them. Okay. So that was, you know, that's the good thing. The bad thing is, you know, it's like, you know, you have your good and your bad 
writers too. And not everything traditionally published is, is good and not everything, um, self published is bad. It's, sure. it's, we're in the middle of a sea change and everything <laughs> is totally time. up in the air. There are no rules. Right. Anymore. Right. And I think that's, I think that's a valid point. Uh, uh, and, and just moving forward, I, I really don't want to turn this into a discussion of the, the, the relative merits or, or detriments of the self-publishing biz. Uh, uh, that's, that's, that's a topic for another, another framework. But oh, yeah. the, the, uh, the, the, the invocation of self-publishing, of the ability, of the freedom that writers have now is definitely valid. So for Joe, uh, uh we're looking at the, the online, uh, consumption of, of, Stories now, uh, and also the opening of the gates for, for the self-pubbers, uh, uh, and, and those opportunities that those represent. I'm gonna switch over to Cat Rambo for, for a different perspective. Cat, for you, uh, especially from your, from your vantage point, uh, uh, being, being digitally connected and also through your, your connections through SIFWA, uh, I'd imagine you've, you've seen some dramatic changes and evolutions, not only in the delivery methods, but in the stories themselves. What, what have you observed? Well, one of the things that, one of the pieces of technology that I think is having a big influence on us is mobile devices and, and the way increasingly a lot of people are reading fiction on not even just their iPads, but on their phones, which just astonishes me, perhaps with my aging eyes, um, <laughs> you know, but a lot of people are reading on mobile devices. And, and so stuff like flash fiction is becoming, I think, more viable or at least more in the forefront than it used to be. Uh, Daily Science Fiction, which is a, a terrific online magazine, they've actually gone to publishing nothing but uh, flash fiction and then there's a new site that just came up called Quarter Reads, where basically they're selling flash stories for 25 cents a pop, which is a pretty good, you know, and they're defining it as under 2,000 words. And 25 cents for a, a 2,000 word story is a pretty good deal, I sure. think. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So to summarize, uh, uh, we're seeing uh, uh, new delivery methods then, new new consumption formats like mobile devices, iPads, and so on, and and a general shortening, I guess, of the content itself that's being distributed is that is that a safe summary there cat that yeah. is i i want to add one other thing though uh, which is about the the self publishing which is that uh some of the stuff that's getting self published is stuff that might have difficulty getting published through a traditional publisher either because it is very experimental or it is a, a kind of uh, risky approach or just you know even not a, a traditional approach i was just reading a detective series where the author said hey i, I made the in the fourth book the the point of view is from the antagonist right the villain that he keeps running into and that's something that a traditional house might not have let me do and so i, I think some we're seeing some of the, the edges, some of the, the traditions getting challenged as a result of that as well. And that's a valuable, that's a valuable tool to, to have a playground where we can explore different modes, different POVs, different mm -hmm. structures of storytelling that traditional publishers, because they are profit driven, uh, uh, and that's not a bad thing. Businesses, that's how businesses work. Uh, but, th but that kind of risk is not something they, they can take and, and still be a viable, uh, uh, entity. Mm -hmm. So awesome. Very cool. Well, and, and, and then that leads me directly over to, uh, uh, Janet, uh, <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, part, part of, part of the reason that you guys started Perseid Press was because, uh, uh, the traditional publishing framework wasn't, uh, wasn't suited to what you guys wanted to do. So, and, uh, you both have, have had your finger on the pulse of, of genre fiction, spec fiction, and publishing in general for, for many years. What, what for you guys, and we'll start with Janet and then go over to Chris. Uh, uh, Janet, what, what are you seeing as the biggest change of, in storytelling in recent years? Well, there's changes that I like and changes that I don't like. <laughs> Ain't that um, the truth? The change that I like is the impact of the ebook taking the size limitation off and streamlining the process as far as, you know, this should be you turn your, you, you sign a book contract, turn it in a year or 18 months from when you did it. Um, you then did it and turned it in and they spent another 18 months before it came out. So now it's a long time. It's three years. The process of going direct to ebook was something we explored when we, I mean, we went back to our agent when we came back and decided we wanted to do some more fiction 
We had taken 20 years off from fiction to do nonfiction and other stuff that really didn't. It's a different part of your brain. You can't just switch that fast from your nonfiction part, your fiction part. And um, my agent said, well, great, you know. And I said, yeah, but I want to keep my ebook rights. And he said, I can't sell it if you won't offer your ebook rights as part of the package. I said, well, okay, well, then let me see. You know, I can always come back to this. Let me see about can I put up a little house to do what I want to do with this modern publishing. So we did that, and we have Proceed Press was the result. But the And Proceed Press has published some really estimable writers, like Michael, who's won awards for things that he's done, and people from established in the fan community who are, are critics like Joe. But we also thought that we would find droves of young, talented writers who were just too edgy, too experimental, too intellectually dangerous. That's not what we found. We found a lot of people who don't know the basics of their craft and who mistake story for surroundings mm. and plot for world building. But every so often you find a really wonderful writer. She's going to take a break. Um, for me, the... The greatest development of my lifetime has been serialization, whether it was comic books or continuing series or, or novels broken up and published in sections. It gave the audience a sense of continuity over time, uh, an intimacy that's built on years put into the development of characters and the familiarity of, of the audience with those characters as life partners in in story exploration. Uh, the media uh, surge that we're in the midst of is really competition for eyes, uh, whether it's telling a story through involving someone with a video game interface or attracting them to a TV series, uh, limited distribution perhaps, HBO and the rest. Um, it's all keeping people in a passive modality where the essential ingredient of a story experience, which to me is the audience's imagination of what is going on in the construct that they're, they're listening to or reading, uh, is at a disadvantage. And I'm so high on audiobooks because I get a chance to involve my audience one-to-one in the dark space. And by the dark space, I mean their mind where they can turn on the lights and and imagine, uh, really participate, fill out the the, uh, the story form. Uh, So that's that's my big hot button. Okay. Well, yeah, and and definitely – the, the technology that, that, that cat evoked, the, the, the mobile technology is now so accessible that, that an audiobook can, can fill, fills a lot of people's commute, I can tell you. Uh, and, and I, I love the invocation of the serialization of, of stories is also, again, the technology has made that a much more viable format and that generates a lot more excitement, but it also creates, I think, a different a different way of storytelling, yes, Chris. I mean, I mean, if you're going to break your your story into a series that's spread out, you can't just take a novel and you know break out your chapters and and spread it out over time. Or can you? I, I'm I'm not sure. I meant I meant more the tradition of Conan Doyle, right? And the the great Jack London, uh, the great Dickens. Uh, Dickens, yeah. Who, I mean, he that what he just serialized. Um, what he was doing when we did Thieves World, we did one, everybody did one 10 to 15,000 word story a year. What I like about current media is that that sense that the audience has that they have a friend, uh, in the writer, uh, in the author, and that they are progressing along a life path with that literary presence. Uh, sharing, it's really, ineffable it's and yet critical to what i consider the enjoyment of storytelling we should at some point touch upon this issue of how storytelling has become more episodic less conclusive you see it in television and movies now everything is setting up for sequels all the time um people who've never written anything you know announcing they're writing an eight book series um and you can buy it three pages at a time uh, <laughs> the uh, C.S. Lewis said a story has to have three things, a beginning, a middle, and an end. 
Okay. Now, if you, we, we watch a couple hours of TV that we time shift every night to keep up with what they're doing. And more and more, none of these stories manage to have a, any kind of acceptable conclusion compared to what they used to have. Um, nor do longer works have what to me is a, a satisfactory conclusion. And when we've been writing in continuing series, like one, we have some that are, I guess, L 17 years old. Um, how do you get a beginning, a middle, and an end where there is no simple way to do it? You can't kill the guy that doesn't have the story. Um, <laughs> you, can't, you can't do obvious things. So how do you get that conclusive feel, which is the payoff for the audience? The audience really wants the beginning, the middle, and the end, and yet keep enough interest that they'll come back for more. That's the balancing act for the talented creator is to, to figure those balances and how to damp something down enough to give a conclusive feel while still leaving plenty more to do. Well, let's, let's, let's go ahead and put a pin in that. I agree. I think, I think the serialization, the, the sequencing, the series impulse, uh, uh, certainly in television, the episodic nature of that, but also yeah. the episodic nature of, of storytelling in general, I think is, has expanded in these recent years as well. Let's touch, let, let's put a pin in that. And also, Chris, I want to go back to your notion of, uh, uh, the, the reader seeing the, the, the author as a friend and a connective connection, because I think that's something else to discuss. But first, I want to get Michael's take on things, uh, uh, from, 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 right now, very warm Alaska. Uh, uh, Michael, you, uh, like everyone on this panel, has, have been engaging in the, the, the fictional, the fiction game, uh, uh, the, the craft for, for quite some time. What are you seeing uh, as the, as the most profound changes to that storytelling framework uh, from your perspective. Well, I was going to bounce off one thing Chris said. I think the whole concept of the writer becoming uh, less a hermit and less removed from the story. I mean, days past we didn't know who the writer was and and or didn't necessarily know who she, he or she was. And now with social media and blogs and podcasts and whatnot, we, we are starting to get to know the writer as a person. And um, to me, that's kind of been an interesting aspect of storytelling is where people respond to what I say sort of as just this guy living up here and doing fun stuff and having this interesting day job and having a cute dog. And people, people <laughs> think that's they love that. And if I could figure out how to make a living off of that, that would be even more wonderful. But I, <laughs> but I think it's become an aspect of storytelling that it, it doesn't have to be that way. You could still be a recluse. You could still be an anonymous. Um, people could never know who you are. You, you don't want them to know you, who you are. Or you could even, at the other side of that is you could fake it. Um, I you know, want to be Tom Spencer. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you, you did fake it once, Janet. Thank <laughs> you. Know, <laughs> you know, and uh, and that would be fun. I mean, it is fun. So I think that's an aspect of storytelling. You know, certainly, as I guess I would say, a mature writer, um, you know, one in my my fifties and late fifties. You know, the, the publishing has changed, and um, I think a lot of the changes make it it's possible to preserve some of those voices that have contributed to the years, but for some reason publishing has set aside because, uh, well, you know, their first three books didn't, weren't bestsellers. And so what good are they? So I, I think, you know, micro presses and small presses like what Percy is doing are, have, have made it possible for, for those, those voices to continue. And that's, I mean, that's a good use of the technology and a good aspect of the technology. Sure. And that wasn't possible, uh, uh, before the advent of, of the ebook and, and the social media. They couldn't get the, the promotional push to get their, their name out there. And, and the, the production costs were way too high. But now you've got, you've got Ragnarok Publishing. You've got Perseid Press. You have a whole strata of publishers that are operating cat as you observed on that fringe environment uh, yeah. and, and creating new opportunities for writers that, that like to play in those waters. What I think is interesting too, is that, you know, traditional brick and mortar, you know, mainstream publishing is also recognizing that. And they're sort of seeing that as, I mean, in some aspects it's kind of the farm team of publishing 
oh, you know, here we've got Andy Weir with this cool Martian book. He 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 self-published on his blog chapter by chapter. Yeah. You know, and now it's 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 you know a major bestseller and soon to be a motion picture. And soon to be a motion picture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's 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 pull back just a moment and and touch back on the on the notion of the reader and the author the the reader seeing the author as as a human being more than just a name on the book cover now with amazon you can see what everybody thinks of your work uh, within days uh it's not just the the new york times book review that's that's reviewing your books you're you're getting grassroots boots on the ground feedback on your work and not all of it is pleasant some of it is is very passionate uh cat in particular you i know with your with your workshops with your your visibility as vice president of sifwa and and your own just general social presence you have a, a very I would almost go go so far as to say an intimate relationship with many of your fans. They they know you very very well, and I'd imagine you know them. Do you find does that impact or impinge upon your I don't know your creative process when you get that kind of feedback when you know that there's people out there looking for X Y or Z from you? Is is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I mean, I I think part of it depends on whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. Uh, True. For me, it's I've I've got a lot of new friends, and I I think it's a lot of fun. (laughs) Um, But I also worked with an online game for about 15 years before I started writing. And if you think people feel passionately about sports, let me say when you're dealing with an online game, people get (laughs) ten times uh, crazier. And, And sometimes unpleasantly crazy um Mm -hmm. and and i do think it's important for writers to kind of figure out one of the things that i suggest to in my uh building an online presence book is is that uh new writers think about before they even start think about what they're comfortable talking about online and what they're not and i also think it's really important to follow basic privacy practices like you know two-factor authentication and and not put, giving out too much personal information i you know it's, it's a kind of weird balancing act sure would, would yes yes there is there's a, a feeling a sentiment i think out there that if you aren't social if you're not if you don't have a twitter feed and a facebook account and a g plus and a this and a that 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 you're actually hurting yourself in terms of the success of your work do you do you think that's true I don't think you're hurting yourself, but you aren't helping yourself. Ah, okay. Good distinction. Good yeah. distinction. Joe, what about you? Uh, have you experienced this this sudden transparency of between between author and reader, and and have your readers? Do you feel impacted your your ability to to be yourself as an author, as opposed to being aware of these people kind of looking over your shoulder, saying, "What's next, Joe?" Yeah, my my four fans, <laughs> um, as someone said, uh, I find it interesting that of all the people that, um, well, I'll just talk about Dorgo because Janet said, Joe, that's my, my legacy character, as Janet said. And I says, I, I, I find that more women ha- respond to Dorgo the Dowser to Mad Shadows than men, which I find interesting because he is a little bit of a dog, but you know, with a good heart. And I try, you know, when I write now, I'm conscious of that, that uh, a lot of writers, a lot of male writers that I know have always written for a male audience, ignoring, you know, the, the, the women out there. And I think you need to write for both. And by, being out there, being a visible writer on Facebook and Google Plus and all that, you make yourself more accessible to people who may not be interested in your books, but then all of a sudden they they get to know you. You get to know your your Facebook persona, and they like that, and it leads them to you know I might check out this guy's book. I might check out this woman's book. I like you know the sense of humor. You know, I started almost five years ago. My goal was, you know, publish Mad Shadows, and that was it. And and then, you know, bye, 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 go to Arizona, learn to golf. <laughs> now I find myself, I got, 
opportunities were offered to me, and so I kept writing, and I never thought, it, I never imagined I'd have an Amazon author page, I'd have a Google profile, that I'd be on Facebook, that I'd be on, on Google+. Plus. I was friended by Janet under an alias, and we were talking, chatting one day, and I says, you know, it just dawned on me, I says, you're Janet Morris, right? She says, well, yeah, what you think it was? And is this, is this Tempest Thales? Is this the Tempest Thales character you were Tempest connecting Thales, with? Yeah. He has more <laughs> friends than I do. <laughs> but you know, I always I always I, I consider myself Alfred to to Tempest Batman because I always like to protect the identity. People ask me things I won't say. <laughs> I have no idea who that is. I, yeah, I, I, I don't because it's you'd be revealing something people might want to keep secret, you know, that that's personal business. Let them tell you, you know, if they, if they want to. That's not my business. I did want to just say something about what, what Chris was saying about audiobooks. Mm-hmm. And since audiobooks first made their presence known, I said, wow, this is so cool because a lot of people don't have the time to read, so they put them in the car. But it's basic, it is an oral tradition, and I'm from that generation, probably the last generation to have grown up with with radio shows, <laughs> listening to radio shows, and that is what audiobooks really are. They're an extension of the radio dramas, and those are always good because it engages your, your, your imagination, and you imagine it as it's happening, mm. and you just sit there and you get lost in it. So, you know, audiobooks to me are, you know, anything, like I said about Kindle and Nook, Anything to get people reading is yes. is a plus. That, that's what it's all about as writers and as people who read. You know, let's get more people reading. And, and the one other thing about the way stories are told, this whole thing about series, I do get a little tired of one story being unresolved for eight, nine novels. And uh, I, I mean... Ian Fleming, how many James Bond books did he write? Um, Lester Dent and all those who wrote under that name. How many Doc Savage novels? But those were complete enclosed stories. Complete like, story. Yeah, like, like Janet was saying about TV. I prefer situation comedies because they always end and that's it. You know, there's these hour long shows, American TV. Someone made a comment they prefer British TV because there's always closure. They do them for six episodes, 13 episodes, or three seasons, and then that's it. There's closure. Um, Janet gave me the opportunity to do something in hell, which is, and I, and I do believe in the middle, beginning, middle, and end. But what I do is I, I try to end my story so it ends. You know the story's over with, but who says you can't pick up and continue on with the next adventure of those characters. So I, I approach it as, you know, they're kind of chapters in a book, but also they are complete in and of themselves. Well, you can't die in hell. (laughs) Yeah, you can't die. I wish you could, but you can't die in hell. Well, the inexperienced writer who doesn't know how to end their story often decides that they'll just kill one character or another. And that would be the end of the story. But you can't do that in hell. Well, you can, but you create an enemy who's going to come get you the next time. Um, so hell is, it requires the writer to write stories of human value, passion, drama, without sex or death being the climax. Well, um, let, me, let me, let me, let me offer this. You know, I, Janet, you're absolutely right. You know, uh, an inexperienced writer that has difficulty ending their stories, that's one thing. Uh, but, you know, the, the episodic nature of television, certainly, all right, uh, uh, but even within fiction, within, within the written word, the, the, the books and stories that are being out there, whether they are being podcast, audiobooked, or, or printed, can you not, in the context of a series, can you not tell a much larger story through an episodic or, or, or segmented sequence of book one, book two, book three, you know, the trilogy, of course, is, is the big thing that's certainly good promotionally, but also from a storyteller standpoint, I can tell, you know, this first stage of their life and give it a, a climactic conclusion, uh, but still leave, you know, the, 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 the strings dangling 
to continue the larger arc of the greater story. I mean, the notion of a threaded story or a layered story, I think in, in modern, with modern delivery methods and modern storytelling methods, that's, that's a possibility. Does that, does that work for you? Is, is that, is that a consideration, do you think? Absolutely. We have, we've been doing that for years. Um, if you have big enough characters, if your characters are magnetic enough and interesting enough, and if you have some sense of the larger framework, I hate to use Tolkien as an example, but, you know, Lord of the Rings, sure. um, you know, he got to, you got break points. It really couldn't have been split too many different ways. Um, but he was telling this meta story. And when we, you really, if you're going to do series books, and I'm sure Kat will say the same thing, the writer has to understand how those stories are going to nest and they yes. have to go somewhere. Um, they can't just be, well, I'm never going to be done with these characters. So, um, on I'll go because when you get into the books two and three and four of, of a big long series, if you're not careful, you're carrying too much backstory mm-hmm. and people will be very surprised at how little backstory you really need because you have to invent the backstory for the first volume. You don't really need any more ever again than you used in that first one. But um, the value of a great big character who holds your interest, if you, the writer and you, the editor love the story. I remember one time I refused to go on with one. Um, I had a, done a trilogy for a big New York house, and they asked me to do a, um, a number four, and I said, no, it's over. I really set this one up for three volumes. This is where it ends, and didn't do it. And I look for that in other writers. We're publishing a new writer, and I love the book. It's called The Ninth, and it's about the Ninth Roman Legion, and mm. it's past past, present, and future all at once. It's just just my kind of thing. I really adore it. <laughs> and um, after we said we were going to buy it, he said, well, you know, I could make it a trilogy. I said, was that your intention? Because this seemed really complete. And he said, no, it's it's this was meant as a book. And so what we've done is we've published the first one, which is finished, as what it is, a standalone novel. And then we gave him a contract for two more under the, uh, he thinks he's got two more stories that will be, be equally compelling, but equally as complete. And I said, you know, if they're not up to this level, neither you nor I are going to want to go on with it. And he said, yeah, but I think I can do it. So I said, okay, but there's, you can't forget that there has to be magic. When you let out the dog and put in the cat and sit down to read, or to turn on your audiobook, you're giving me your mind, your mind's eye, now your ears with audiobook. You know, I can watch television and make dinner at the same time. I can't read or really listen to an audiobook and do those things in that way because if you if your attention goes to the to the story and if the narrator, whether it's the narrator that speaks in your head, that the writer has given direct or whether it's the narrator for the audiobook, if they are doing their job and they pull you into that story. Dinner's going to get burned. Right. <laughs> yeah. You should be there completely, you know, not just partially. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Michael, what about you, sir? Uh, have you have you been tempted at all to to indulge in this in this serialization or this episodic uh, uh, exploration that that the contemporary formats seem to encourage? Well, only through Janet's Heroes in Hell's series. I mean, and that's just been because she, well, she made me. You know, she asked me, <laughs> and I it forced me. Yeah, it, and I I have recurring characters that I. That I played around with, but I'm not as I'm not a big serial guy. I've, I've, you know, the only serial I've been tempted to do is a second book, kind of a, a, not even a sequel, well, a sequel to After the Zap, but that's just playing around with that universe in another way. You know, one thing I think about it's 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 intriguing to me that people are okay with these long story arcs that really don't go anywhere, because well, part of it I think storytelling is about is creating an order and a unity to to 
basically something that has no order unity. I mean, life is chaotic and erratic and things happen. You can't have things happen in fiction that happen in life because people say, well, that, that could never happen. That's impossible. Yeah. Um, you see this at writing workshops that somebody, some new writer says, yeah, but it's true. It happened to me. And you go, well, that's, it, it's not true for fiction. If fiction is, <laughs> you know, we're, we're trying to say that, yeah, if, if you're heroic and good and strong and able, you will overcome obstacles, but you will prevail. And, and uh, you unless know, you're writing a tragedy. Well, true, true, right, yeah. right. But, 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 you know, if you're heroic and, and fight hard with ovarian cancer, you, you still die, you know, um, yeah. you know, it's just it's some stuff that's just, it's just, you die. It doesn't work yeah. out. But you find the nobility in, in your life through that tragedy in some way. Well, well, true. I think the power of, of fiction and storytelling and in the power of, uh, you know, religion and spirituality, which is just basically very complicated storytelling, is that we fake this order in a chaotic existence. Um, and, you know, we do it more directly in storytelling, but I think, you know, the idea is we hope that we could then take that into our real life. And, and even though it's life sucks and it's pretty horrible and it's awful, we could find dignity and, and some sort of meaning, even in the worst things that happen. That's an interesting perspective. I, I, I'd never heard, considered fiction in the context of, of religion in, just in terms of, of service to the participant. Uh, but that's, that's very true. That's very true. Uh, it does serve as, as a template for how things could slash should be and, and carries us forward from there. Oh yeah. There's a, there's a pedagogic function in, that many writers assume. Uh, that is take on knowingly to bring their audience through situations which demand they reach a little deeper than their fear of death for values that may lie or may not lie beyond. And uh, one of the great qualities of the hell stories is that we took death off the table. <laughs> That's not and the worst thing that can happen so, to you in hell. Yeah. Well, what happens is that each and every story is a Rorschach of the writers contributing, and it's marvelous to peel back the layer on that storyteller's psyche to see what really lies in there beyond the mechanics available to any shoot 'em up. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's, I don't know, I, I just find it fascinating. But they're, to us in particular, and uh, the, anyone who attempts heroic fiction, that is telling stories of individuals struggling in the service to some ideal or other, uh, it, it is a feeling of, oh God, noblesse oblige, uh, <laughs> you know, to, to carry on in the tradition of the great stories we read and enjoyed as youngsters. And, I mean, Scheherazade, great story arc there, can't argue with it. It's huge mm-hmm. success as a, uh, as, a, as a literate and, uh, adventure of, of scope. Sure, but, but by the same token, uh, and, and I guess that's kind of the intriguing aspect that spurred this discussion, is that because of these new formats and and the the new freedoms that current circumstances allow the storyteller uh uh there there is a com- yes there's definitely a service to to those traditions that bore out good storytelling but there's also nobody telling you no other than whether you can find people to read your books or not that has become the final arbiter of I, I would say a successful story is is not whether it, it can be compared to Joyce or Steinbeck, but can I get ten thousand people to to read and and critically uh, uh, claim in some way, shape, or form, or affirm the story that I'm telling? And I, I guess that's kind of the crisis point that we find ourselves at, where when all of the rules are gone, when all of the boundaries are down, and and I don't know, public 
Well, well the other, niche assessment comes in. Where where are we as writers? The other side of the coin is woe betide the writer who listens to endless, unpaid criticism of his work. <laughs> the thing about that, and and this kind of goes back to to one of our household sayings, and I I don't know if you're going to have to bleep this or not, but our saying around here is writers just fucking write. <laughs> and you know you just you can't spend too yeah. much time worrying about what yeah. you're writing. You just got to write right. it and then right. worry about here yeah. here. Yeah. Well, you know, we always felt that way about our own stuff. I've always only written the book I wanted to read, and I've turned down lots of things that might have been extremely lucrative um in retrospect, but if they weren't what I write to please myself. So, I have to please that writer first. Before it goes anyway, and then I have to get it past my husband, which is not easy. Uh, <laughs> that's going to be a part of your life for a long time. If you're yes. not down with your book, uh, yes. <laughs> it's, your life's going to be hell. There's still a constraint when you're writing it, quote, for some editor. It's different when you're just writing it. So I used to do two that I pre-sold and then do one that I hadn't because I had more funds, mm-hmm. fun with ones that I hadn't. Um, and I could be more adventurous. And when we, we take authors now very carefully and only a very few that we really think are writing dangerously that are making a difference, um, that have something edgy and if not new to say, at least a new temperament to look through because that's what art is. It's life scenes or temperament. Um, so when we publish somebody, it's not because we need a certain number of books to go out in the 12 months. It's because we really like this person's book. And that's, I don't know if as we get bigger, which it's trying to do when I'm trying to stop it. um, (laughs) That's not going to happen, Janet. Sorry. Whether I can keep that, you know, the freshness and that freedom to say, yeah, I'll do that one. And, I mean, you get some amazing things. There's some things that Michael has done. Um, For example, Michael wouldn't mention it, but he had an impromptu um, pacemaker put in. And uh yes. had a helicopter ride and the pacemaker and bumping the other guy in line, near death experience, the whole thing. Wow. And after it was over, I said, Well what about my health story for this round? Keep <laughs> <laughs> so our priorities in line here. He said, Huh? And I said he said, Well all I can think about is what happened to me. I said, Well, put the pacemaker in the story. Yeah. So we did. So now this character has the pacemaker, and it's uh, that's a wonderful story. It's <laughs> a wonderful story. Well, let me let me let me put a let me put a final question to our group as as we as we wrap up I, th- this conversation. I, I I honestly, with all of these dialogues, I have no idea where they're going to go, uh, uh, and it's really determined by the, the the character and aesthetic of of our assembled uh, guests. And this has been fascinating. But let me let me put one last question around it and see where this takes us. And I'll start with you, Joe. Um, there are myriad opportunities, uh, changing terrain as you observed, uh, uh, rules have been thrown out, uh, and new opportunities to, to not only deliver your stories in different ways, but to tell your stories and to tell different stories, uh, in, a, in an environment where those stories can be received and actually, uh, change the world in, in whatever small way is possible. So as you look forward, Joe, on your future storytelling, what are you seeing that's going to change about how you tell your stories? I have not even contemplated that my goal would be um, to tell my stories. Um, the the arc, the plan for Dorgo is just to write about his life and not about what's going on in the world around him, you know, no world in jeopardy. I'm just telling his story, what's going to happen to him. Um, my other goal is I, I, I don't know about edgy or dangerous writing in that, but I do want to strive to be more literate in, 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 in more in a literary tradition of what I'm trying. And I don't, know how I could change my style of storytelling, though I, I've i stolen an idea from Janet I've been using, which is uh, using present tense uh, a lot more in a story, especially during action scenes, because it amps up the volume of 
that immediacy of the action happening, you know, and if you do it right within the paragraph without jumping all over the place with points of view, if you do it right and then you, you come back down with a transitional sentence and you're back in third person again. <laughs> See, and that, I think, I think that right there, uh, this, this, this open field of format and, and storytelling, you know, between POV, between tense with, uh, uh, what was it? Present tense, the, the whole, uh, mockingbird, help me out, hunger games. Was was told present tense, which was you know some oh, yeah. people freaked out over that. I've read a few books in the in in years ago that I think Michael Moorcock wrote something that was um it would be second person, you know, <laughs> yeah, and it's complicated and it's hard and you really gotta you know keep you on your toes doing that. So I think sure. that's been a challenge for me uh in, in experimenting uh um in style of writing and and I will keep doing that if the story calls for it the story sure calls for always it. in service to the story well michael let's turn the mic over to you sir uh looking forward on your craft in this in this changing uh storytelling world uh are you are you looking at changing or or availing yourself of some of the opportunities that this new brave new world uh, affords you well so- uh, to some degree, I've already done that. I mean, I think the my experience with Janet and Chris and Percy it is an experiment in, in small press publishing. I haven't done that before, and, and that's that's been fun to do because really I don't have to mess with you know anybody but Janet and Chris, or you know that they're the, they're. The, and you don't mess with Michael very much because he doesn't need to be messed with. Right. But it, but it's nice to have that direct relationship i mean in a traditional publisher i would have an editor ideally that would be the only person but then they get the bean counters in there and they don't like the cover it's it's a much more direct and intimate relationship and i and i think that's i think that's that as as it should be um the the other things i'm kind of looking at i want to explore different ways of narrative which i think the technology might allow um I, i one explore how how you could write about time in a in a nonlinear way or oh, yes. in, or more broadly linear way I think because I'm, I'm beginning yeah I'll, yeah I'm exactly yeah. exactly <clears throat> I mean I have a story I'm working on that came out of my near death um, you know flatlining for thirty yeah. fifty three seconds experience and where a guy goes through that and he becomes unhinged from time. Um, I love it. Yeah. So now, but I, how do I write it? That's my, that's what I've been work grappling with. But <laughs> I think it's possible. Um, and I've always, I like Joe said, I've always liked to, to play around with point of view and, and, and tenses and, yeah. tenses and I mean, I, I write, I seem to alternate between first person and third person. In fact, I did that in the same book with Bridge, which is kind of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, but it's not, it's nothing. The, the thing that's kind of sad is, although I know you're well-read and Joe is well-read, there's an awful lot of people that find these things brand new. I mean, do we not remember Call Me Ishmael? Some of us don't. One of the fa- yeah, right. most famous novels of all time starts in the second-person imperative. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. I mean, there is nothing. The, the reason we have all these tenses and adverbs don't forget adverbs. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's because we're going to need them. We have words for a reason. So I don't think any word or any treatment is out of um, out of bounds as long as the writer does it. Michael, if you pretty soon there's going to be a lawyers in hell audiobook, and then you'll hear somebody reading your work. But you know, <laughs> we can even take something of yours straight to audio if that's what you wanted to do. But I read punctuation. And I love punctuation, so I'd like to see the punctuation. So I'm, I guess I'll always be a reader. Well, Janet, Chris, you guys are in a unique position as, you know, owning a publishing imprint, but also as, as creators and generators of story. Uh, what are you looking at moving forward? Uh, uh, not only just for Percy, but also for your own personal storytelling. We are into mind alteration. Uh-oh. Probably a generational thing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Using there's, there's Using a, without drugs. There's, <laughs> exactly. But Books there's a drive. Drugs. There's a drive in the species 
to get into states unavailable to them other than in hearing, experiencing, sharing the experiences of others in some form or other. And that's what we love to provide. And we love to be taken where only a character can take us. And that means that the character has something special that is probably either illegal or physically impossible in the realm that we live in. The other thing is that Cat says a writer should just write. You just write because you're right. <laughs> you have to tell that story, but it's, it's a growth mechanism. We write because the person that writes is the person we are becoming, not necessarily the person we are. It's where we're going, not where we've, where we're stuck. And my storyteller, my narrator is a much better person than the person on this podcast. You know, just, <laughs> but, although I do look okay in a kilt, you know, like, <laughs> well, we all play to our strengths, Chris. The <laughs> narration is definitely his strength. He's doing I Sun, and it's just amazing. The Sacred Band was amazing. Um, I get chills when I hear those characters coming in through my ears rather than through my eyes. It's a different experience of its own. But, you know, when we're writing, I mean, I've got, I do have stories every year, lest I get too full of myself. Um, <laughs> I'm helping some writers with their work. Uh, it takes quite a bit of time. If I see something I like in a writer and he's relatively untutored, I'll still try and bring it there. If I see the magic spark, um, the ones that have something to say, I, I enjoy helping them say it, but I'm doing my Rhesus of Thrace novel, which I've only wanted to do for 40 years. Um, and it's, it's a balancing act, you know, between scholarship and surrender to the story. I mean, this guy is unlike any other character I've ever had. He's fascinating. His, uh, there's one, two, three, so far four strong females in this book. Um, one of whom is the only nymph in Greek mythology, whoever was confirmed a rapist. Um, so that's interesting to have a female that's so much more powerful. Yeah. And I'm doing something with Joe. I'm getting the, you know, I'm always, I've got two anthologies going. We have Heroica, which is the first, I hope, of a series based in heroic fiction. Right, the dragon slayers, oh, the the well, first, first, yeah, we do, dragon eaters is the dragon first. Dragon eaters, one. right? Shieldless, we think will be the second one. The new smoked meat, That's yeah, right. Dragon, <laughs> the only naturally smoked meat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we're having a lot of fun, but if I'm not having fun, then I need to either fix the project so I am, or stop working on it. If I can't find somebody who's going to have fun with it then there's something wrong with it and we should burn it at full moon on a hill. <laughs> well, um, and really, I mean, I think that that kind of sums up one of one of the coolest things I think about this changing face of storytelling is that there are a lot more ways to have fun. And then using that axiom, Janet, absolutely, uh, there there are more opportunities to indulge in that in that creative froth and that excitement and and that joy of storytelling. Absolutely. Absolutely, and I'm sure Cat will confirm that if you can help somebody that has a wonderful idea and yeah. that germ of magic <laughs> and help get rid of everything around it that doesn't belong so that what's wonderful comes forth, that's its own sort of reward. That's well, a blissful experience. Yeah. <laughs> well, and Kat, you do, you, you know, your, your presence on this panel is, is multifaceted. You're, you're like a, an omni-genus because you, you, you bring in, you have the, the face of the educator and, and the, Someone who engages with with younger talents or newer talents or or talents that are seeking to refine their their abilities. You also are a creator yourself and craft marvelous tales. And you're kind of in a position of leadership as VP of Sifwa with uh, defining at least from a from a profession standpoint, but also from a craft standpoint, uh, uh, charting a course as we move forward into these unknown spaces. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to really challenge you here and, and ask you, can you can you speak to each of those three aspects of Cat Rambo and, and, and tell us what are you looking to, to leverage and change uh, in this in this future time of, of possibility and potential? 
Well, first, my ego has swelled to such <laughs> enormous proportions after hearing all that that I, I'm sort of dazed. Um, <laughs> I, well, I, I mean, I think I think one of the things that we've all hit on is that, that the experience remains the same, right? It's it's that blissful immersion in the text where we forget that we're reading, and you know, you just people could be the fi- house can be on fire, and you're ignoring yes. it because you're just so deep into it. And I don't, I don't, and that's not changing. It's just that there's a lot of new ways into it. And one of the cool things about this group is that a lot of us are, I mean, I think all of us are exploring lots of new ways. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, you mentioned the, the Patreon campaign, which is basically for me, it's going back to, to Dickens, right? It's letting people subscribe to my, my story feed. Yes. And then I've also been putting short stories up online, which I've, I've loved because it's, it, you know, I don't have to worry about the word limit. I can actually put up a short story and say, Hey, for 99 cents, you can, you can get this. And what's been really interesting for me about that is, is that there's one story that has done like 2000 times better than any of the rest. And luckily it's a, a story that I really like and I want to go back to that universe. So I'm, I'm kind of steering my writing back that way and writing another story set in that universe. Yeah. So, so that immediate feedback from, from your, from your readership gives you, allows you to chart your course. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know that I would have gone back to it. It's a superhero story and it is done. It is literally sold 20 or 30 times better than anything else. It's just crazy. Is this the one that you just posted? Um, no, yeah, that's the one that I'm working on right now. Yeah. I'm liking that too. Yeah, I'm liking that a lot. lot. It's what, a lot of fun. What about as an educator, you know, with your with your online courses? I, I know that's a that's a vital part of your your that, that feeds your your creative muse. Are you looking at changing or altering that in in any way, or is it? I mean, honestly, with, with the Google Hangouts, that that's a technology that you've leveraged and made very effective. How are you moving forward with that? Um. Well, I've been looking at other technology that lets me talk to more than uh, eight people at a time. <laughs> right, <laughs> right now, the Google Hangouts is, you know, it's got a limit of 10. So I do eight students and I have that extra slot just in case of emergencies or guests or whatever. Um, so I'm looking at that. But for me, that kind of goes back to something I I think it that Joe said at the beginning about self-publishing and talking about uh, one of the perils of self-publishing is that you get a lot of people self-publishing without sort of going through the the rock tumbler of of submit and reject, you know, <laughs> that, that bumps a lot of rough corners off. Um, and so for me, one of the things I, I've been trying to say to students lately is, is, yeah, this is a great, wonderful new world. But one of the things you have to realizes that, you know, you still have to get some experience, but, you know, nobody is going to go, I am a writer and put on a beret and suddenly be producing deathless prose without, you know, a little bit of crap beforehand. <laughs> deathless prose. Deathless <laughs> prose. <laughs> true. True. Very true. And, and, and I think, I think we're discovering that uh, there, there was an initial, Oh my God, look at all the crap that's on Amazon now with all these self pubbers in there. But, but we've, we've evolved as a culture, yeah. uh, as a cyber culture. And, and now there, while there aren't necessarily gatekeepers as much anymore, but there are, there are taste keepers and, mm-hmm. and right. the book bloggers yeah. and the reviewers yeah. and that cyber culture. Give us, give us a lens into what's working and what's not. So. For sure. And that's just to kind of go back to SIFWA. That's one of the things that's been interesting in that we've been trying to figure out uh, ways to allow self-published and small press people to qualify uh, Mm -hmm. for membership in SIFWA. And so we had to figure out kind of how do you define success? And for us, we went with an economic uh, marker because for me, that was the only one that made sense. Sure, sure. And, and, and that continues. I mean, as a, as a writer, you know, there's only so far you can go with that, that ephemeral delight of putting your books out there. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're independently wealthy, awesome. <laughs> Keep going. But most of us don't have that luxury. Yeah. Uh, and, and the reader feedback and that reader engagement, readers vote with their money, with mm-hmm. their dollars. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, friends, the, the the time has run out for our for our conversation. There's clearly more to discuss uh, uh, and, and more avenues to explore. But I'm gonna I'm gonna bring this to a close at this point. I I, I think we've while we haven't necessarily answered all of the questions of this changing face, I think if nothing else, we've defined some of the points of consideration. Uh, and and that sometimes is as much a value as an answer. A, a, a point down a path uh, can can be just as valuable, if not more so, than than an actual conclusive 
resolution to whatever whatever interests or challenges we're, we're confronted with. So I want to thank my guests for this roundtable dialogue, Joe Bonadonna, Janet and Chris Morris, Michael Armstrong, and Kat Rambo. All of you have, have elevated this discussion and I think brought some excellent points to not only this conversation, but also uh, uh, to our listeners. And I, I appreciate it from each of you. Thank you all so much. Thank you very much. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, friends, the Roundtable feed will continue next week. Next Tuesday, we'll have uh, another fabulous guest host bringing words of wisdom. Uh, We'll have courageous guest writers, creative and courageous guest writers bringing their tales for discussion, brainstorming, and workshopping. Uh, The Roundtable awesomeness continues on and on. Uh, So thank you all for tuning in. We appreciate it very much. We'll see you in seven days. Until then, you guys, you stay cool, you be frothy, you be awesome, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> this episode of the Roundtable Dialogues is copyright 2015 by the Roundtable Podcast and released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it but you can share it as much as you like. You can even use portions of it in your own derivative works. Just make sure you release those works under the same licensing terms and cite the Roundtable podcast as the source. We'd like to thank our panel of guests for this Roundtable dialogue, Kat Rambo, Joe Bonadonna, Michael Armstrong, and Janet and Chris Morris. We appreciate your generosity of time and also the sharing of your insights, experience, and inspirations. Keep your ears tuned to the feed for more roundtable goodness, but until then, and as always, thank you for listening.